Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Attention BetMGM customers. Have a friend who loves sports as much as you do? Here's a chance for both of you to earn a $50 bonus when they sign up through BetMGM's Refer-A-Friend program. Just sign into your BetMGM account and click on the Refer-A-Friend program to send your friend a message inviting them to register a new account in the same state you use BetMGM in. Once your friend signs up and makes a deposit, they'll receive a $50 bonus. And once your friend places a bet with their bonus and the wager is settled, you'll receive a $50 bonus as well. Share the excitement and get a $50 bonus every time you refer a friend to BetMGM. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Ohio only. New and existing customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets. Bonus bets expire in 30 days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Hi folks, welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick. Got an interesting episode for you today. So this will be particularly interesting for draft next, and I realize the draft is just now over. But we're joined by Benjamin Robinson, who has a method for predicting the big board from mock drafts. I want him to explain to you, and it's, it, it really uh, sounds very interesting and very well done from a data science perspective. Benjamin, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. I, uh, always looking for great content like this. Benjamin, first of all, where can people talk football with you on Twitter? So, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at B-E-N-J underscore Robinson. That's me. All right. Outstanding. A worthwhile follow, I think you'll find uh, in, in terms of what he's produced here. Uh, so tell, tell me about your method here. You've, this is essentially a method that produces an entire big board from a number of mock drafts that are out there from various people. Yeah. So the project that I run is called Grinding the Mocks. And, you know, the tagline that I have on our website um, is that, you know, we use mock drafts, the wisdom of crowds and data science to predict the NFL draft. You know, and the idea came to me basically 
I didn't know until a lot later that Brian Burke, um, who's kind of one of the mm-hmm. more well-known people in football analytics, had kind of had an idea that was very much like this years before I even did, but I thought it was original at the time. Um, was on the friend, uh, the couch of a friend of mine in college. Um, you know, I'm a Cincinnati Bengals fan. I'm originally from Cincinnati. My buddy is a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, and we went to college in Pittsburgh together. We're watching the draft together because we can. Everyone can have fun during the draft, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's an optimistic time. And you know, we're sitting there on the couch and we're listening to the draft analysts talk, and they say that player X that was a reach. Um, and I kind of thought, well, how do we know? And so it all came from that question of, you know, how do we know? How do we know that where a player is expected to go in the draft so that we can kind of have like a a conversation about what we think might happen? And so I did some kind of uh, analysis based on the 2018 draft. It's kind of a little proof of concept. And I thought it was really interesting how it kind of lined up with some of the conventional wisdom and sometimes not. Um, And so to me, that was kind of where it first got started of, you know, how good are mock drafts at predicting the NFL draft itself? And it turns out they do a pretty good job. Um, and so um, I kind of started down the rabbit hole, and uh, you know, three or four years later, I'm still doing it. All right, outstanding. So uh, you know, reaches are, are a topic that I talk about on the show. We do you know hours of draft coverage, and in fact, as we're watching the draft, we have a draft watch party that we record and then and then make available to people later. And one of the big topics that comes up is just how much value people can waste by reaching for a pick. So that's of great interest to us. You know, the the classic one. You know, the the three Raiders who just got uh, not fifth year optioned. Uh, that included Cleveland Farrell taken at number four, very famously in 2019. I think it's 19. I, I, it better be famous. It better be the year. But anyway, with that, that year, one of Mayock's uh, draft picks, and Gruden might have had something to do with it too. Um, they had decided on their guy and basically could have had him, what, 10, 12, 15 picks later. And, you know, you, you talk about the amount of value that they lost in doing that, uh, you know, you just have to understand something about what consensus opinions are to make economical draft picks. Yeah, definitely. Draft capital is, is a, is a limited resource for the most part. And so um, I think that it really helps to think about this stuff in terms of money. I think when people think about picks, they think of them as non-fungible assets and in reality you're, you're burning value. Mm-hmm. Um, and Cleland Farrell is the number one reach in my data set from 2019 to 2022 in terms of what I call draft capital overexpected. And that um, we and to make that calculation, we subtract the expected draft position from the actual draft position, and then we weight higher picks as more valuable than lower picks. Which system, which scale do you use for valuing the picks? Um, so I use a logarithmic scale um, just because it's, it's simple. You could also use any number of draft value chart that's out there, mm-hmm. whether it's the you know Chase Stewart uh, draft chart based off of approximate value or the, the one that I kind of like because it's based off of dollars is the Fitzgerald Spielberger draft chart as okay. well. But the logarithmic transformation actually is like pretty beautiful. It's like, you know, we find it in nature all, of, all the time. It's elegant. It's yes. very elegant and, yeah. and, and does a really nice job actually in terms of capturing um, that change in value. But yeah, I, I'd like you, before we forget, and I'll just say on the end of the show, could you post that on Twitter or, or perhaps even just send it to me directly in, uh, via DM so I have a link to how, what value that creates by pick? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Love to see that and, and compare it to the other systems as well. seems like JJ is still what's used for trades, uh, but it breaks down a little bit at the very top where JJ is the most peaked. 
and uh, teams will sometimes get less or even occasionally get more, depending on whether they're trading up for a quarterback or down because the other team doesn't really feel like they need to pick there. Yeah, I'm not an expert on the JJ stuff, you know, uh, but yeah, I, I like uh, having metrics that are more up to date than the JJ chart. Mm-hmm. Um, it was great at the time, and it's kind of funny that it kind of still dictates some of the trades, and you can even see that in some of the trades yeah. that were made during the draft last week that, um, you know, some people would look at the chart and say, yeah, like by the JJ chart, that's like a, a fairly even trade. And then if you looked at more advanced charts, you could see some teams operate on that level. And it's an interesting game, the trades, because, you know, people are, it's a long game. It's not necessarily a short game. You don't want to necessarily fleece somebody in a trade because then they may not want to trade with you again. So it's an interesting uh, game to play this trade game. But yeah, like in terms of the economical um, topic we were talking about when it comes to draft picks, yeah, I mean, it's it's very interesting. Um, you know, to me, when I think about um, drafting players higher or or drafting players lower than expected, um, not everything. Not it, it's not a bad thing to do that all the time. There are mm-hmm. moments where that will work out for you, and there are moments where it won't. Um, I think doing it on a consistent basis is where it's problematic. You know, when I look at the Ravens, they, I think, think about the draft in a pretty economical way. Mm-hmm. They do reach occasionally. Um, to me, like one of the more egregious reaches was not in this year's draft that they did. It was in last year's draft. With Brandon Stevens? or with with... Brandon Stevens. Yeah. Um, and you can even see it on the field this year when he was forced to play. Mm-hmm. You know, you could kind of tell that, you know, that's a guy that maybe – he was when you go that far above consensus to draft a player, yeah. um, you're basically saying this. And I, I said this in an article that I was quoted in in the Upshot in the New York Times. If you make that the cornerstone of your philosophy to consistently pick players earlier than they're expected, what you're saying is that you're smarter than the NFL over mm-hmm. and over and over and over again. One you time, be right. <laughs> yeah, one time you can be right. Yeah. But if you make that a, your the core of your philosophy, that that's your evaluative process, and that's what the output is. That's something where I question your process, and you see okay, that well, in negative teams like the Raiders doing that over and over again. And you can see that it just if you make that the core of your philosophy, and you end up with a system where you're valuing players way higher than the rest of the league, mm-hmm. it's going to bite you at the end because those players are probably not going to be that good. You're you're already not right in a sense because you haven't drafted as economically as you could. So if you could have had Farrell ten picks later and you knew it, my first talk, my first comment to Mayock would be you should trade down, and Mayock would would probably say back, I tried and I tried and I tried, and I and then my next comment is lose the trade. There's always people willing to uh, if if you're stuck on that player, lose the trade, get him at fourteen, and take seventy percent of the JJ value you should because I guarantee you there's a taker at that kind of level. You know, some of the some of the sharper teams will be on that. That's tough. Yeah, I I agree that they shouldn't have taken Farrell. Um, you know, to me, they could have done something worse. I mean, it's it's tough. It's tough to say if they had their heart and mindset on Farrell from the beginning. It's probably hard to get them to change their mind. Um, we look at the players that were available around then. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's tough. Like Josh Allen was there. Ed Oliver was there. Mm-hmm. I think in a way it comes down to kind of your deterministic thinking of trying to fit like needs. Mm-hmm. So they, everyone kind of knew that Josh Jacobs was a big target of theirs and they knew that they were going to take them at the end of the first round, potentially. I mean, we can talk a lot about the value of the first round running back. It's kind of an tired discussion, mm-hmm. but they felt like people knew that they were going to do that. And so when you do that, you basically, you go from having basically three 
first round picks to basically saying you're going to have two because you're basically right. going to feel like you have to take Josh Jacobs. And so they were in a position where, you know, uh, they put themselves into like a, a tough spot um, and they definitely acted in a way that was super suboptimal. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that when you do that, you, you could trade down or you could basically what you could try to do is, and I think some teams think about this, is you try to norm your board, somehow like regress what your board is to a little bit more towards the quote unquote mean or like what the consensus is. Um, but I think some teams are really prideful and the Raven, the, the Raiders aren't really known as a very super analytically forward thinking group that might change with the Patriot kind of, uh, you know, group coming in, but it's unclear. Not everybody has as clear of a kind of process between the scouting side and the data side as a team like the Ravens does. Right. Well, fair enough. Well, let's Before we talk into more of this and some of the examples with the Ravens and whatnot, let's go back to your methodology and just talk through what data do you collect and how do you come up with a, a consensus big board? So, yeah, no, I mean, I wouldn't call what we do like a consensus big board. It's, it's more of what I like to call, um, you know, the big board tries to predict talent and it's more of like a consensus mock draft to a certain okay. extent. Um, but you can think of it as a big board too. It, it does pretty decent. It, it correlates pretty closely with the big boards. Um, but it's not always exactly the same, but yeah. So generally what I do is we, I collect mock drafts from all over the internet. It can be from the draft nicks that you know about to some of the draft nicks that you don't know about. I don't necessarily have like a rhyme or reason of which ones I collect, but I do like to have the, the ones from the most accurate sources um, largely with a focus on the experts in the media, but also occasionally some passionate fans who have a lot of know-how when it comes to the draft. You but mentioned yeah. that you want you want every pick made as opposed to just team mock drafts, though. That that critical yeah. decision, right? Yeah, so I want it to be full-round mock drafts, whether it's just the first round, cool. If it's the second and third round and more, like even better. Um, so I collect that data. And what I do is basically run it through a statistical model. And the model really cares about two main things. Um, two of the main features are when the mock draft was published relative to the draft. So the, the idea that mock drafts that are published closer to the draft are going to be more complete in terms of the information set that we have. We know better about who the players are going to be in the player pool. We know better about what the team needs are. We know better about the tendencies. The best mock drafts come out closer to the draft. The people, one can argue that lots of other mock drafts are kind of just content and scenarios, but when we get closer to the draft, we're maybe actually trying to get it right. Um, So that's really important. And then also who makes the mock draft is important too. Um, Let's go back to the first point for a second, because I really want to ask you about that. So in terms of the timing relative to the draft, did you go back and regress somehow against how accurate early created drafts were relative to actual early created mocks to, to create this weighting system? Um, not really. I just use kind of like an inverse linear weight. So, you know, for example, like mock drafts that are made the day of the draft are weighted one mm-hmm. mock drafts the day before, you know, are weighted uh, a half and so on and so forth. So mock drafts that were made today are weighted something along the lines of like almost zero. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an inverse linear weighting that I apply to the the mock drafts. So you that's kind you, of yeah. You can't get me all the way to understanding it by just having it be one and a half. I have to have one more in that. In <laughs> a that third, line. is it a half, third, a third, third, a quarter, but not a quarter. It's not a, th- a half a quarter. Uh, you know, no, I guess yeah, that would be geometric. Half, yeah, half a third. Yeah, it's it's an inverse linear, so it just kind of goes. Okay. Yeah, and so the the real 
um, waiting kind of really starts to kick in, you know, like a, a little bit about a week away from the mock draft. That's really from the draft. That's really when the value of those mocks starts to kick in. Cause the idea is that everything else is informative. Um, people are, you know, complained about the mock drafts that come out now, mm-hmm. you know, there's different kind of seasons to like the calendar of like when mock drafts come out. So sure. right now mock drafts are, more like watch lists. Like these are players who you should watch. These are the players that are going to make up the prospect pool for the next draft. They're not necessarily going to be super predictive of who's going to get selected, but they're going to tell us a bit about who are the players we should watch, who we should think have a chance of being drafted sometimes early next year. Benjamin, we need to timestamp this. This is very important because people don't know when we did this. So this is 5-4-22. So we, yeah. The 2022 draft is over. Benjamin's talking about the 2023 draft. Yeah. And basically, any kind of list of players you see there, it's a watch list. Those players could fall flat on their faces in the 2022 college season and, and or get hurt or whatever else might go on. So it is, it's, it's watch list based. I think we understand that. Um, and so the point you're making is that uh, for the 2022 draft, if, if mocks that came out on 428 predicting three rounds would get the highest weighting within your system for those three rounds. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And so, you know, as the the college season happens, then we're updating as well for we're seeing production. You know, you see, like, for example, I'm a University of Pittsburgh uh, alum, Kenny Pickett last year. Mm -hmm. You know, his during the season, people will start watching and say, oh, you know, quarterbacks like an important position. We've seen a lot of players over the last few years kind of really have, uh, you know, hot years that and then they go into the draft like it's kyler murray you know it's joe burrow mac jones kenny pickett and you update the mock drafts that we have based on that and so by the end of the process you know after the season we go through the combine the the senior bowls all that stuff um you know and then from there uh you know we end up with a story the story of um, a player's draft process um, of their season. And so, yeah, right now the, the mock drafts aren't going to tell us as much, but as we go full, closer and closer and closer to the draft, you know, the mock drafts are telling us more and more and more. So that's all part of the process. So right now, just enjoy the mock drafts for what they are, that they're telling us players we should look out for, not necessarily who's going to get matched with who. That's way closer to the draft, and that's why I weight them a lot higher. Uh, understood. And so they have, you know, one over 360 or whatever right now in terms yeah. of their, their weighting. So be almost nothing in terms of what you're looking at. Uh, so uh, let's uh, talk a little bit further then about about uh, other credibility of perhaps the mockers and how you figure in that component of it. You know, I'm not sure what you mean. Can you kind of go into that a little bit yeah, more? Yeah, well, like you, you, you talked about you'd take Mel Kuyper's draft to be worth more than somebody else's, so it's a credibility factor for the, for the yes. individual mockers. Yeah. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so, you know, for me, I'm always trying to answer questions with data. And so and when I first was starting the, this project, I didn't necessarily know who was more accurate than anybody else, and so I didn't wait any single mock draft differently than anybody else. Mm-hmm. But it became clear that, you know, this could be something that could help marginally improve the accuracy of the model. Um, because the idea is that no one mock draft is going to potentially impact the score more than others because we're, you know, we're doing a big aggregation. And so when you aggregate, unless you have some massive weight, you know, one, one observation shouldn't necessarily change your ultimate output too much. Um, but 
there are ways to marginally improve the model. And so basically I wanted to do was I wanted to have a data-driven weighting for the draft neck. And so what I do is I go back in time in my data set and I calculate a mean squared error, basically, that including that logarithmic adjustment. And that factors into um, creating this index of the mock draft accuracy. And so that gets updated every year. And so the idea is that over time, you know, we should know more and more about the actual accuracy of these um, predictors. And so we can weight, you know, the Mel Kuypers of the world more than like the Joe Schmoes of the world that we were talking about before, because Mel Kuyper has a track record and we can go back in time and see how good he is at predicting the draft and making sure that we weight his observations appropriately relative to somebody else who doesn't have a track record or has a poor one. Okay, so how do you combine the two components of duration of doing it or how many drafts they've been in there along with mean, average mean squared error, squared error over that period? And that's not to say you use average mean squared error. It's, you know, however you apply mean squared error. Yeah, so you can do kind of like a weighted average, basically. So if you have more observations, you can feel strongly about that and mm-hmm. wait for time. So that's what I do. And so that okay. way... You're rewarding him for making a lot of predictions. And this is pretty common in um, the kind of research that's out there. Um, So um, something that I've read on quite a lot is the work of Philip Tetlock, who's a kind of psychologist, and he's at the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business. And he's written a lot on people he calls super forecasters. And he does this in the context of um, quite a bit in political science, um, but he's okay. interested in like what makes people good at forecasting. And one of the things that makes people good at forecasting is making lots of forecasts. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we want to make sure that we're rewarding people who are constantly putting out their predictions and then updating those predictions based off of new data. And so, yeah, some of the best mock drafters in my data are ones who put out multiple mock drafts. And so... I think it's because they think about the scenarios that are going into the draft. They have prior beliefs about players mm-hmm. and they're changing those prior beliefs about players based off of new information, based off of what they're seeing and hearing. And they're letting people in the public know about it so we can track them. And there's also be a kind of a survivorship component to that is the people who make consistently good predictions are the people who are continually being hired to make such predictions. And yeah. it's true of ec- economists. It'd be true of a lot of things. Actuaries, for sure, in terms of the, the, the people who are really getting paid to do the job are, are people who uh, are successful at it. Yeah. And to me, the more, the better. I mean, I would love to have a pool of people who are really, really great predictors, predictors in my my data set. Um, so. Yeah, the more the merrier. If they're really good at it, I'd love to have as much data on them as possible. You understand? I'm talking about things in all yeah. branches of study, and not just in. Oh, football. yeah, for sure. Okay. for sure. For uh, sure. I, I, let's uh, let's move on though. So so now you have a you, you develop a consensus draft order, and then you make a calculation of actual draft position less the value the position you'd expected. And then you have a difference in terms of that logarithmic scale of value you assign to the picks mm-hmm. that you then uh, call what? What do you call that difference? I call it draft capital over expected. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the metric that I come up with that I rank players by is called, I call it expected draft position. Okay. And so, um, yeah, so this is what I call it draft capital over expected. Yep. 
Okay, terrific. Okay, so DCOE, and, and there you have, uh, uh, let's talk about the Ravens picks from this year, then, and, and I think that'd be the coolest since we're on a Ravens show. I appreciate you uh, doing that. Do you have that all prepared? Yeah. Let's hear it. Yeah, so the Ravens made 11 picks in this year's draft, not surprising. Um, and so the more picks you make, the more kind of likelihood sometimes you have of reaching for players because the board is what it is. But the Ravens finished sixth this year in my draft capital over expected, um, and they were in the positive round, one of the kind of few teams that really had a consistently kind of positive outlook when it comes to the draft. Um, is that you know, a case of almost all teams reach for need at some point yeah. and teams that wait for value for longer into the draft will tend to be the ones who end up positive because their weighted value over their picks in terms of DCOE is going to be higher if they can get big wins in early rounds. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it can be the case. I mean, an example in this year's class was the New York Giants, mm-hmm. who I thought did really well in the beginning parts of the draft. And then pretty much everybody agrees later on in day two and day three that they were consistently reaching for picks. And that put them at the bottom of my draft capital over expected rankings, even below the Patriots, even accounting for pick value. Really? Because they picked players that I had in the fifth round and they had picked players I had in the fifth round and like the second or third round, maybe the third round. And they had players that I had undrafted go in the fourth round. And when you do that, you're just consistently, when you do that enough, Yes, that's, that's, that's where I start to ask questions. And so in this case, like maybe Thibodeau and maybe uh, Evan Neal, the two yeah. top picks they made turn out to be really good. And, but at the same time, like the draft is used not just to get star players, it's also used to build depth. Okay. And so that ends up being a problem for a team like the Giants who already don't, don't have a lot of depth. Okay, now I think I understand, before I even ask this question, what the answer might be. Since you're using uh, uh, Fitzgerald Spielberger as, and you know, you're not using that, you're using this logarithmic scale. Is, is your logarithmic scale closer to Fitzgerald Spielberger than it is to, say, JJ, in terms of what it looks like uh, in terms of values? Um, I haven't analyzed them too much. I mainly use the logarithmic scale for just parsimonious and it's just easy to program. Um, But yeah, no, I don't know the answer to that. Okay. So I I, want to look at that because one of the things that I would have thought is that you'd be certainly if you're going by a JJ scale and you just had somebody was the fourth expected pick and you draft them 18th overall, you should pick up that amount of JJ value within the, within your system to say, Hey, that's the value over expected you got. If, if you're using a different scale, well, okay, I'm kind of a little, little lost in the woods. I need to understand your scale first to understand if it's really creating a flat valuation of expectation such that you have to win in all rounds beyond the first. You can't just search for value in rounds, say, one and two. You have to search for value in round five as well with flat valuations. Yeah, I think that's a fair critique. Um, yeah, for sure. You know, it's it's a little tough sometimes. I mean, so, for example, I, I struggle sometimes with the valuations of it, too. So, for example, my number one team by draft capital over expected this year was the Carolina Panthers. They got a decent chunk of, of that from drafting – Ole Miss quarterback Matt Corral in the third round when I thought he would go in the second round. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, they picked up a ton of value by drafting Ikem Ikwonu, the offensive tackle from North Carolina State, at pick six because in my data, I thought he was the third overall player. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, you can call that a steal. Um, is it, should it be as big of a steal as it looks like in the data? That's because I value those top picks really highly. And so 
So does everybody question. else. <laughs> yeah, so does everybody else. But in theory, yeah. like, was getting Ikemekwonu there that big of a steal? It's arguable. So, again, let's go back to the Ravens here and, and talk through pick by pick how did they do in this draft. Sure. So, yeah, so with um, their first pick in this uh, draft, they drafted Kyle Hamilton, a mm-hmm. safety from Notre Dame. I had him as the 12th overall player, so getting him at 14 is a fine value. It's not that big of a value. I think it ends up being, um, you know, in terms of like the percentile of steals, like in the 30th percentile. So it's not a huge steal. Obviously, he's a great player. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's all good and dandy. You know, Tyler Linderbaum, I had him almost falling out of the first round. I think a lot of mock drafts had him going to my hometown, Cincinnati Bengals, at the end of yep. the first or dropping into the second. So the fact that they drafted him at pick 25, the model will call that a little bit of a reach. I still think that he's an excellent player, and that's why they drafted him. Um, that model, that ends up being like a 40th percentile reach for me, so also not a big reach. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, then you go to David Ojabo from Michigan. I had him. Before you go on to this, the, the, sure. the two first-round picks, because I'm trying to get an idea of weighting of 14 relative to 25. You said it was a 30th percentile steal and a 40th percentile um, reach. How did those two combine in terms of the, did they get a net plus or a net negative? Um, I think it would be a slight negative. Yeah. Wow. Slight negative. Yeah. Okay. Um, That's very different from the way Ravens fans and I think the general public view it, but please continue. Yeah. So it basically is saying that like the difference between the 12th pick and the 14th pick is a little bit less than the difference between the 31st pick and the 25th pick. Great. In a linear scale, you know, we would say that it's three times different, but on the log scale, we would say that it's a little bit smaller than that. <laughs> Fair um, enough. Fair enough. Um, if, but yeah, David Ojabo, I had as the 43rd ranked player in the class and he went 45th. So that's like a nice win for me. That's basically like pretty much right on. Like if you were to call that quote unquote, a steal, it's like a, you know, a seventh percentile steal. So, sure. like, you know, it's, it's, it's great. I think he's a great player. So that's, that's good. They would never have been able to get him I think there's like in your mind, it's a bigger steal than it is on paper because people viewed him coming into the draft as like a potential top 20 player. And to get him in the 40s is purely due to this injury and the long like run view that the Ravens have for prospects. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm fine with having a long run view for prospects, but the economics of the NFL really force you to get your value out of your draft picks within that first four years of any second round or higher player in the first five years or really four and a half years, if you want to think about it that way, of a first-year prospect. So if you if, you're, if your return on a Jabo is only a year and a half of, of good play because his development is hampered by the fact he doesn't play, as well as his production is hampered by the fact he doesn't play in 2022, I think that's a problem. I, I did see that the Cowboys in their uh, revealed draft sheet, you probably have seen it since, had him at, I think, number 26 or some such. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's a good player. I mean, the thing that I would say that, he was not expected to make as big of an impact as a first round defensive end or edge rusher normally would mm-hmm. because I think the league viewed him as not as adept at being able to kind of play against the run and that he would have been a situational pass rusher. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, uh, there's some people who believe that he would have taken a quote unquote red shirt year or he would have played fairly minimally in his first year to begin with just in the situational pass rush situations so you're probably not even getting that. Um, but if there's any team that knows David Ojabo as well as anybody else, it's the Ravens because Mike McDonald took a little you know, yeah. gap year at Michigan 
before he came <laughs> back to the Ravens again and the Harbaugh brothers. Love so to me, it's it like, you know, like they know the Michigan program. They know should know as much about David Ojabo as anybody else. He seems like a pretty resilient guy, and I hope he comes back strong. Yeah, I, I well, I, I do too. And uh, uh, the one thing I'd say about situational pass rushers is, and, and I, I personally, I think Ajabo should have probably gone later than 45, not not earlier. But the, the point I would make about situational pass rushers is that if you've got them, they, they're getting the highest leverage downs. So even if, you, even if you don't think the guy can stop the run, he still has a lot of value if you can bring him on th- third down and he can affect those downs. Uh, certain positions in the NFL kind of are undervalued for that. Dimeback is one of the big ones because – I personally believe a platoon linebacker system where you, you take out your weak side linebacker and even your mic on third down to put a safety on gives you a lot more value, a lot less injury risk, a lot less need to go after a first round unicorn as a three down linebacker uh, that you that you really avoid by a platoon system. We saw platoons work in baseball for many, many years. Uh, they, they certainly haven't been used as extensively in football. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I think we're still understanding a little bit about how some of these positions interplay. I mean, hey, you're talking about this platoon. I mean, the Ravens did kind of both of those things, mm-hmm. you know, 2020, drafting Patrick Queen and Malik Harrison. Um, I believe that was that draft. Yep. Um, but, yeah, so I think that's the point of what you're making is the Kyle Hamilton point. I mean, Kyle Hamilton, the idea is that he's sort of a chess piece mm-hmm. in terms of safety, that you can bring him down into the box, you can cover tight ends, you can cover out of the backfield, and that you can also play him deep occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I think that it's the same discussion with a player that the Ravens might have drafted, if not for the Philadelphia Eagles moving in front of them to select Jordan Davis, the defensive tackle from Georgia. There's quite a bit of research that these kind of big um, space-eating defensive tackles can be more valuable than we might have thought in the past, uh, because with a lot of the new too high safety defenses, you're inviting the offense to run the ball at you. And so in order and that can be helpful if you have a guy that can command double teams and allow your team to play better run defense. And then if he also has pass rush, like maybe Jordan Davis could, we'll see if that actually happens or not. Then that helps even more. Yeah, I, I one thing that is completely lost. The Ravens Ravens uh, never really got value from systems like PFF for Haloti Nada. It never recognized him as being a great player. But watching him play all the time and analyzing defense the way I do, I'll tell you the the ability of Nada to eat double teams so regularly has an enormous impact on the rest of the pass rush, even if he never got home. And Jordan Davis will have that kind of impact for Philadelphia on passing downs if that's how they choose to deploy him. If they want him on rundowns, it'll be good. But uh, I, that's, that's I think, also very misunderstood by the general analyst population and undervalued. Yeah, I think that's why a lot of teams were, you know, including myself, you know, in my mock draft that I put out before the draft at Football Outsiders, where I've been doing some writing, um, I pegged him to Baltimore because I thought that of the teams that were there in the top 15, them or the Eagles would probably are two yeah. really strong teams and that they understand that as part of the process. And they have valued defensive tackles in, highly in their scheme in the past, whether it's, you know, Haloti Nada with Baltimore or, you know, um, with Fletcher, Fletcher Cox, Cox. Yeah. for the Eagles. Um, but yeah, speaking of defensive tackles, um, you know, Travis Jones um, was the the next pick that the Ravens made, kind of uh, thought of as like a Jordan Davis light. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I thought that that was a, a great pick. I had him 48th in the draft and the Ravens got him at 76. And so for me, in terms of steals, you know, that's a 75th, 80th percentile type of steal. And so, yeah, that's basically going to be their 
you know, if there are people who are saying before the draft that if you can't get Jordan Davis in the first round, you should get Travis Jones in the second, and the Ravens got Travis Jones in the third. Yeah. So, you know, I called that pretty good process. Um, so, um, and then, you know, moving on to what my data says is the Ravens' biggest steal in the draft here. It's offensive tackle from Minnesota, Daniel Fa'alele. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people are going to compare him a lot to Orlando Brown Jr., because of how big he is physically. Um, So he is a real interesting player. He is from Australia. Um, He's, and when I say big, he's like the greatest, largest player who's ever played in the NFL. Yeah, He might be (laughs) over 400 pounds or around 400 pounds, maybe not over 400 pounds. He might be 400 pounds. Um, And so that's kind of when you bring in the comparisons to Orlando Brown, who famously looked pretty out of shape Mm -hmm. at the combine in 2018 and turned into a really plus player on the right side for the Ravens. Um, so, you know, the Ravens made some good acquisitions this offseason at tackle. I think they'd wanted to add depth. And the idea is that in, you know, when they picked him at, you know, pick 110, that he doesn't necessarily have to work out, but it's just another roll of the dice at a position that can be really helpful for you. So he needs to get his playing weight down to like what I heard, like 360 pounds, which is still massive, but for him would be, a great way to focus on his, his other, but he's, he's a mountain of a man. Right. And so I, my data viewed that, you know, counting for that as like a 85th percentile steal. Wow. So um, the so. consecutive picks of Jones and Falele were, yeah. were both huge wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. You know, and then you follow that up with Jalen Armour Davis from Alabama. Um, you know, I had him at 60 or sorry, at uh, 115 and he went at 119. So once again, that's like pretty right, right on. on the, as a fifth percentile, quote unquote. And it's really deal. good to get a need pick for that, for still that much value. Yeah. To get, to get you know, basically right on value. I mean, a, a true need pick, you'd sacrifice some, right? You'd sacrifice some DCOE to, uh, DCOE, right? Yeah. yeah. DCOE, DCOE to, to, to make a need pick because it needs, it fits your team better, it fits your needs. Yeah, it's always nice when need and value align. Yep. And so, like, in this draft, you see that quite a bit. And that's been a theme for Ravens drafts all the time. People complain, like, oh, the Ravens, just, like, good players fall to them. I mean, some of that is process and some of that is luck. And it's always good to have good, you know, both of those things. Um, you know, finishing up, we have, you know, Charlie Kohler from Iowa State, who I had at 114 and went at 128. So that's also kind of a little bit of a steal. But you know, for the most part, was was in the same round. So that's like a 20th percentile steal for me. Um, then you get to one of their bigger reaches of the quote-unquote draft for me, Jordan Stout, Penter, punter from Penn State. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my I'd say that for me, the specialists are some of the hardest positions to predict in the draft. So you can kind of discount that if you want. Um, for me, yeah, like I had Jordan Stout going 189, and they got him at 130. There was a run on punters, quote unquote, in this draft because mm-hmm. Jake Carmida from Georgia and Matt Ariza from San Diego State all went, I think, in the fourth or fifth round. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I don't necessarily know which punter is better. Um, if they wanted to burn a, pl- a pick on that, you know, I would ding them because I usually think that you can get those players later. But, you know, it, knowing the Ravens, they probably have some, like, they probably know more about the, these guys than anybody else. And analytically, they probably studied them pretty hard. Did so, you happen to see the data that came out comparing Stout to Ariza? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, I have some friends in the sports analytics space who are really interested in, in the punting analytics. And from what I've heard from them is that Ariza had the strongest leg. And so that also results sometimes in more touchbacks than you want because mm-hmm. of how strong the blunt strength of the leg is. And while we, that's something where, you know, we kind of get biased by what we can see in the game. And it makes sense because it's just massive and you see the players running back. But it turns out that Jordan Stout was one of the more, the most accurate directional punters. And so if you're more interested in being accurate than powerful in this case, or the mix of accuracy and power, um, that's what I think attracted him to a team like the Ravens who would probably take into account the coaches evaluations as well as some of the analysts evaluations when making these picks. So just for folks who haven't heard, and I know a lot of people in Baltimore have on punts between the thirties, uh, per I think it's per PFF because it was a PFF guy who produced it uh the average starting field position for Jordan Stout was the 12.0 yard line and for Matt Ariza was the 16.0 yard line and big difference in in 10 53 percent in tens to I think 27 percent for uh Ariza so that's that's why the Ravens took him yeah and then what you can eventually do to even quantify that is to come up with some sort of expected point value as well and when you do that you know you can just add more flame to the fire of the sure. the argument that Jordan Stout is the guy to take. And to be honest, that was kind of a, uh, that came out like Tom Pelissero tweeted that before the draft that don't be surprised if Jordan Stout goes before Matt Ariza. Mm-hmm. And that was right. And even the contacts that I have in the league were telling me the same thing when they shared information with me. Um, but yeah, then rounding out the draft, you know, Isaiah likely uh, tight end, from Coastal Carolina, I had him as a top 100 player, um, so I was kind of surprised that he went 140. That's another, you know, the Ravens are going to be interesting to watch when it comes to how they deploy their weapons on offense. You know, their their trade of Hollywood Brown leaves their receiving room a little bit lighter, I think, than probably they would <laughs> like. Yeah. So instead of trying to get a wide receiver to, to fill that need, I think they've decided, you know, hey, we're going to go big. It's worked for us in the past. Um, it can work for us again. We can have someone um, fill some of the snaps that I, I expect the um, what's his name, the guy from Texas who they drafted a couple of years ago, who's super fast to fill some more of the Duvernay. Yeah. Devin Duvernay to fill some of the snaps that Marquise Brown devoids now with going to, you know, going to Arizona, but that they're going to include the tight end a little bit more. And so that's why they drafted two of them. Mm-hmm. They drafted Kolar, who's a little bit more of an sh- inline tight end. Mm-hmm. Um, and they drafted Likely, who some people don't think he's a great blocker at all. So he could potentially be even split out or maybe more of an H-back kind of playing horizontally as well. Right. But a, a quite, a, quite a good athlete. I think there's tape of him scoring like a 100-yard touchdown this year for Coastal Carolina, who had one of the more fun offenses in college football. Sure. We're, we're, we're big fans of using tight ends in different ways here. And, and uh, he's, he certainly was used as a move tight end at Coastal Carolina and is a guy that I think will have the same role with the Ravens. Well, I, I believe Kolar will be a guy who's either on the end or split out wide to try and run a route. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the, the last two selections are, this is the one that my model didn't really like a lot. Demarion Williams, mm-hmm. cornerback from Houston at pick 141, who I projected to be undrafted in terms of he was lower than 262 on my board mm-hmm. or he didn't have enough mock drafts to be included in the calculations. So that's like one more thing that I do is in order to get a mock draft for me, an expected draft position, you have to have 10 mock drafts to your name from 10 different draft mix with the mm-hmm. idea being that 
there has to be at least 10 people who think you're worth drafting at all. Do you get 262 um, players who fit that requirement? Yeah, this year I had about 325. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it adds up depending on how much data I'm collecting. But this year I was, yeah, I went, I went pretty ham with 2,000 mock drafts. Um, yeah, there's quite, a, there's quite a number of players. I think overall in my data set I collected you know, over 1,000 individual names this year, which was a little bit more than, than it has been in the past. And I think that's because the drafted pool of players was a lot bigger than it has been in the past. But even with that, there were players that I didn't have a mock draft for at all or player, players that I had one mock draft for. Uh, but yeah, Demarion Williams was someone who I either didn't have enough mock drafts or I viewed as lower than 262nd ranked on my, on my board. Okay, so what that would do for you in terms of leaving those outlier players out, if if somebody who I don't know how they'd be weighted highly in terms of their draft accuracy, but somebody said, you know, player A is a second round pick and I'll put them on my board and then three other people follow suit. If they only show up eight times in all the drafts, they can't show up even even if they've got those kind of high grades that would that would project for more total value and might put them in your top two sixty two. Exactly. Or someone who puts out, like I said, some people put out lots of predictions and they'll, they'll change them a little bit in some ways, but they might keep the player. Mm-hmm. And so even then, I don't care that one draft Nick mocked some guy nine times. Okay, very good the, point. The it has to be 10 different people, yeah, not 10 different, 10 different mocks. Okay. Yeah, 10, mo- 10 mocks from 10 different people at least. So you know, that way you end up with this diversity of thought around a player. Sometimes that works out more often than not. It does. I mean, I remember like in last year's draft, the Dallas Cowboys selected a cornerback from Oregon State named, I think, Nashawn Wright, I want to say, in like the third round. And I had, you know, like four mock drafts on him. Um, and one of those mock drafts actually predicted him to be at the right slot to the Dallas Cowboys in that third round. But, you know, more often than not, that's just noise. You can't trust, you know, one person. The idea, the whole you know, ethos of the project is that we're looking at this wisdom of crowds. And so we have to have a crowd in order to make the, in order for there to be wisdom. Um, and then the last player, you know, if there's any team that knows how to use their running backs, it's the Ravens. And so Tyler Beatty from Missouri, you know, I had at 161 and they got him at 196. So generally you're viewing him at that point in the draft. I'm kind of, are you in and around the round that you're that I peg you in a little bit more in terms of what I personally think about the numbers, you know? And so in that sense, you know, he's a, you know, like 35th percentile steal good in the data. And so that adds up to, like I said, the sixth ranked class with 11 draft picks. And so it's a pretty great class for me, just in terms of a process standpoint, we're obviously going to see how good these players are in the coming years. But from a process standpoint, this is sort of measures a little bit of how you're thinking organizationally about the draft when it comes to your process. Okay. First of all, outstanding presentation, great explanation of what your system is. But I want to ask you about one particular change in draft order. And this has been discussed a little bit. I actually brought it up locally here. But um, the Ravens took Tyler Linderbaum in the first round. And they had a chance, instead of taking Linderbaum at 25, and they also acquired a fourth-round pick for that, they could have taken Kair, Kair Elam at number 23 solved their cornerback problem early and the guy I was hoping they might be able to get late Zach Tom actually went 140 to Green Bay so here's what I'd like to try and do if you can if you can find a way to value this for us let's say the Ravens had taken Kyrie Elam at number 23 not gotten the fourth round pick that they did which we have to look back at which pick that was that they acquired it might have been 
in the 128 range, something like that. And then also got Zach Tom with their last six. I'm sorry. Let's say we took, took Zach Tom at the place they took Jalen Armour Davis instead. Sure. So, you know, I had um, Zach Tom as the 102nd ranked player in the class. Okay. And so when we look at where Dylan Armour Davis went, you know, he went 115. So in theory, he might have been, he might have been there. It's possible. Um, yeah, for sure. I think that definitely like is a, is a potentially likely scenario. Um, and then in terms of Kyir Elam, um, I had him as the 26th ranked player mm-hmm. in the data. And we know that the bills valued him enough to trade up for him. So there's probably not going to be a situation in that case where, because right, the, no, the Ravens had the 23rd pick. They traded at the Bills. They had the 25th pick. No, they yeah. had the 23rd pick. 23rd they traded pick. Oh, the Bills. So, yeah, I mean, in theory, yeah, then yeah, they could have taken him there. I think that's, I think that's a likely scenario. Can, yeah. you, can you give me a relative valuation of those by DCOE of those two picks relative to the Linderbaum and Jalen Armour Davis picks? So, Kyir Elam, you know, that is going to be a 20th percentile reach for me mm-hmm. in the data. And then in terms of Tom um, drafting him, at um, so I'm trying to think of this on the fly here. So I had him 102, and then Armored Davis would have been at 114. That probably would have been like a yeah, like a slight reach as well. Probably something pretty low. Um, I don't have like the brain cells right now to calculate it on the fly. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think those are both. I think those are both plausible um, storylines. That alternative histories, right? That could have happened potentially. Um, okay. I think in this case, they. My sense here is that they liked having the best player at each position there. And that if the, if the league is going to undervalue these players because of their positional value, that they are kind of leaning in the opposite way. And there's some, there's an argument to be made that you can go against consensus in a way that takes advantage of market inefficiencies. Um, So the market right now values safeties and centers much lower than they value cornerbacks and even edge rushers, like for example. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so in order for Linderbaum to really make it work, he's going to have to be a quite above average center in order for Kyle Hamilton to really, for the Ravens to get the most value out of them. Kyle Hamilton's going to need to be like much better than like Jamal Adams, for example. Um, and so to me, there is value potentially in leaning into this kind of, heterodox thinking to a certain extent, if you're going to use those special players, special abilities. Mm-hmm. And so I think the idea here is, yeah, they're going to lean into the special powers of Kyle Hamilton that made him uh, on some boards, a top five player, top 10 player in the draft. And they're going to lean into the special powers that Tyler Linderbaum has, you know, the small, small arms uh, be damned, right? Mm-hmm. Like he was successful in college and they're going to find ways to help him be successful in the NFL. And, if there's one team in the league that I think people are, I'm confident in it's the Ravens staff over the years have found ways to get a lot out of um, a lot out of players. And so to me, yeah, if I'm a Ravens fan, there's a little bit of trust element in all of this stuff. How much do you trust the coaching staff and the regime in place to do the right thing, to get the right players, to have the right plan in place? Some teams, they should, you should definitely be concerned. Like you shouldn't necessarily trust those places. I think the Ravens have done enough uh, over the years to earn the trust of fans. And so to me, that also plays into 
uh, some of how you feel about these draft selections is how much do you trust the front office to do the right thing? And some office, front offices have not earned that trust, and some of them have. Or some, some coaching staffs have earned it at certain positions, but not at others. The Ravens do not have an enviable record of, of developing wide receivers, certainly, but they do of offensive linemen, and so they, they and, and, and most defensive players. So that, that's something you can lean on. Benjamin, it's so great to have you on. This was so well done in terms of, of how you explained this and how you were able to interact and give Ravens examples, exactly what we're looking for in this kind of material. And, and uh, you know, a deep and thoughtful presentation of this stuff in terms of data, data analytics topics. Tell folks where they can uh, find your work and uh, what else you do in, in terms of football. So, yeah, so my Twitter account, uh, you can find me on Twitter at B-E-N-J underscore Robinson. If you want to explore some of the mock draft data insights that I have, um, you can go to grindingthemocks.com. Um, so grindingthemocks.com, and I have a Twitter account for the project as well. Uh, it's at grindingmocks. Um, and this year, you can also look back at some of my writing that I've done for Football Outsiders. Um, so I've done some mock drafts for them, and I also did a couple of articles this year on kind of who are the fastest rising players coming and falling players coming out of the combine and going into the draft. Um, and so you can look at those articles as well and uh, hope that you guys learn something and bring it back to your thinking about the draft. All right. Outstanding. Uh, other folks out there, if you're looking to do a film study short, it's that time of year. Love to hear your thoughts, whether it's an analytics project you have, a franchise building topic, just thoughts about maybe some uh, scheme that the Ravens had. Hit me up. DMs are open on Twitter. Always looking to, to hear from you and get back to you very quickly. Benjamin, thanks again for coming on. Wonderful topic. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you next time on Film Study. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.